It's a fundamental shift in terms of technology hardware, data, availability, and then, you know, packaged analytics to allow you to do much more forward-looking analytics than we've ever done in the past. So that's the fundamental revolution we're going through right now. Welcome to Don't Break the Bank, Run It and Change It, our podcast for curious minds in the financial services industry. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and together with my co-host Brian Hayes, we've both worked for over 30 years in banking and banking IT before joining VMware. In today's episode, we catch up with Ray O'Brien. Ray is Chief Operating Officer at Quantexa. He's an international business leader, board member, independent director, and advisor with a unique mix of experiences in data analytics, technology, risk, and financial services. Ray chatted with us about the world of data. He delves into how machine learning has changed the capacity for projects to do things that historically many couldn't afford to do. Ray provides his thoughts on how data and analytics are growing and affecting relationships among businesses and consumers. He also describes how cloud providers and their services might need to be regulated in the future, especially as it relates to the financial services industry. Welcome, Ray. Great to have you with us today. Thank you very much, Matt. Can you give us a quick intro about you and what you do? Sure. So, hi, everybody. I'm Ray O'Brien. I'm the CEO of Quantexa. also work with a number of other tech companies. And before that, I was HSBC for 17 years, where I was CEO of Risk and Compliance and also Global Head of Analytics. Before that, lots of other banks in my career. So about 30, 35 years in financial services. Hopefully, we'll be working for another bank again, Matt. From a career perspective, how did you end up here? How did you get started? It's quite a journey to become a COO. So I did computers and maths in college in Dublin, went over to London, was actually going to join aerospace, but my brother convinced me to try out financial services. It was late 80s, and I joined Climber Benson to digitize the stock exchange. And I built data feeds in and out of the stock exchange for climates back in the days when there were still jobbers and brokers and all those type of things for all those very old people on the call. And then went to <laughs> Japan with Nomura, did derivatives, still in technology. Then came back to Europe, worked for Paribas, amazing lunches, Paribas. Now that was Paribas Capital Markets before <laughs> BNP bought them. Got more and more senior in IT, became a department head. And then the math side of my brain came across that, and I uh, went over and did some trading for a while. So credit derivatives and asset swaps and things like that, and being a quant on the trading floor at Paribas. Then I joined Deutsche Bank, and I was with Deutsche Bank from about mid-90s to about 2001. That was through the phase of enormous growth of Dutch Bank, lots of mergers and acquisitions. And my role was to try and integrate them to build some kind of architecture out of the investment bank of Deutsche Bank as it grew. But then the dot-com boom hit, the first one. I think we're in the second one at the moment. And I set up my own company like everybody else. And I did consultancy and uh, risk management services and technology for a number of financial institutions. Did that for about three, four years. And then I joined HSBC and I was at HSBC for 17 years Started as a kind of a CIO in the investment bank, then became CEO of the transaction bank, CEO of risk and compliance, did the DPA, was global head of analytics for HSBC, lots and lots of different roles. And I decided to retire 
and leave. And that was it. I was going to pull up my shoes and sit on a nice beach and relax. And then Vish from Contexa, who's the CEO, convinced me to be the CEO of Contexa. So I joined, I, I knew Contexa for many years. I was on the board of Contexa because HSBC was one of the original investors in Contexa. And I knew the team here. So I joined Contexa as the CEO. I'm a complete fool, Matt. <laughs> That's not a thing you've ever been called. You've been called a lot of things in my in my earshot, but that was not one of them. <laughs> lovely, lovely. Just yeah, everybody knows me. myself um, and Matt used to work with each other at HSBC. That's why we know each other. We did. We did for a long time. Um, so uh, what, looking back then, what would you say was your career defining moment? There's a couple of aspects that I would say to people who are starting their careers to really look at. But the first one is international. I got lucky early on and did traveling, worked abroad. And I really can't state how important it is to try and get a global view, to get out of your home country and to work in different countries around the world and to experience cultures and experience different peoples of different backgrounds. Because it's so much value to you in your career to understand different viewpoints and not just be monoculture. The second was a very, very wise person once said to me, a very famous quote. It wasn't the gentleman himself, but he was using this person as a reference. And he said, I was reading an X-25 book, Matt. I don't know if you remember X-25, one of those networking <laughs> yeah, protocols. Unfortunately, I do. <laughs> yes, indeed. You see, that now you're showing your age, Matt. Anyway, so I was reading an X-25 book and I was learning a new protocol for God knows what, some kind of packet switch. And I was enjoying myself and I was deep, deep, deep into tech. I could learn every packet there was. This guy came up and he says, well, what are you reading? I says, oh, this nice book. And he says, why are you reading that? I said, uh, you know, it's the new thing that's going to get big. And uh, I really believe this is going to replace LU 6.2 and blah, 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 blah. It's correct, by the way. But he said to me, yeah, but that changes every five years. Why don't you read this book instead? And he handed me a book about bonds. And I looked at that book and I said, really? He said, it never changes. And if you learn that book and you just learn it once, your value will be enormous to an organization. And he gave me a quote from Bloomberg. And this is uh, Mike Bloomberg, uh, a famous billionaire, as we all know. We can love him, we can hate him, <laughs> but he's very famous. And his quote is, there's a lot of people in this business who know more about finance than I do. There's a lot of people in this business who know more about technology than I do. But there's nobody who knows more about both than I do. And that's the key which has guided my career. Learn both technology and the business. If you have both of those, you are the junction point. You are the person. You are the enabler. You are the interface. You are the go-between to the business. You can help construct new financial services. And that's basically where I have tried to m manage my career towards. Fabulous. And I can see that. I can see that. That's that's really cool. So, so Ray, then what, what would you say has been your proudest moment from a professional perspective? Proudest moment? I think it's some of the big go lives. Watching things that you've created go live and be implemented around the world and, and watch people using them. Going into an office and see somebody using a system or a process that you've designed and you've built, 
and just looking at them. They don't know that you're the one who actually built it and just watching them use it and be happy with the user process. So th those are some of my proudest moments. I think the second thing would be around people, developing people. Some of my most proudest moments is watching people who I've managed grow and become self-sufficient and basically overtake me and become incredible, valuable assets to whatever organization they're working for. And I, I really do love watching people grow and become their best. So it's implementations, getting something done, and it's people. Yeah, fab fabulous, fabulous. Let, let's move on. Ben and I did a real deep dive. All right, uh, let's get into it. We'll find out everything there is to know. Okay then, Ray. So we started a conversation uh, a few episodes ago around around data and the world of data and data ethics and AI, ML and those sorts of things. And and I think we're far from done in the topic. So really wanted to get your take on on what's what's new and going on in the world of data analytics. Wow, that's a vast topic, which I could probably could spend hours on that. <laughs> but what's going on? So we are going through the third industrial revolution. We are watching data become a valuable asset, more valuable than other assets that companies own. Why is that? There's been a couple of dynamic changes. The first one is hardware has got commoditized and it's got cheap. You've seen the cloud providers, you've seen VMware, you've seen all these organizations build out hardware technology infrastructure, which allows you to have massive storage and massive amounts of analytics. The second thing you've seen is data provision. So not just your internal data, but external data, bringing those both together and allowing you to do some kind of forward-looking analytics, conceptual analytics around bringing together both internal and external data. So to give you a simple example, 20, 30 years ago, when people used to come to me in large financial institutions and say, look, I want to do this project, I'd look at them and do you, know, do you realize the cost of that? Do you realize just how many CPUs and hardware we'd need? We don't have the data, assets. We would reject the projects. We wouldn't do them. The math hasn't really changed. People say machine learning, Ray, artificial intelligence. That stuff's been around since the 70s. Yeah, we've got some new machine learning techniques, tailored things, but honestly, the concept's been there since the 70s, in fact, earlier. What's changed is the capacity to do these kind of projects and stand up analytical environments and to do trials and POCs and innovation and to try things out that we just couldn't afford to do historically. So it's a fundamental shift in terms of technology hardware, data, availability, and then you know, packaged analytics to allow you to do much more forward-looking analytics than we've ever done in the past. So I th that's the fundamental revolution we're going through right now. I just want to continue that theme, really. So what are some of the more interesting use cases that you are now beginning to work on across FS or otherwise that you, that you can tell us about? There's many, many different use cases that I could talk to you about. Uh, it all depends what your definition of interesting is. 
<laughs> let, let, me, let me give you a selection of things which are amusing. So one of the things that you're trying to do is predict people's behavior, our company's behaviors, our transactional behaviors. And you're trying to forward, you're trying to forecast and forward look on these things. And so what you do is you bring together large data sets, you bring together drivers of that data. Maths is unethical. Maths basically just brings data together and gives you an answer. So it causes you problems. So let me give you a simple example in, in the insurance field. Did you know in the UK that you should not distinguish between male and female drivers on insurance premiums because it's bias, it's gender bias. Now, actually, statistically, it's been proven female drivers are safer than male drivers. And I've got the maths and the data to show you that. So really, women in the UK are subsidizing men in terms of driving insurance premiums. Interesting. Now, imagine Matt's environment where you bring data together and you're running analytics and you're an insurance company. The first thing you notice is that drivers of pink cars are much less risky than drivers of red cars. And if you think about that for a moment, you're going, okay, so you weren't allowed to distinguish between male and female uh, drivers. But the color of the car is very correlated. And yeah, there'll be some edge cases, but it does give you a good indicator of what kind of gender potentially is in that car. And you'll be amazed. You will actually get a lower premium on a pink car than you will on a red car because it's a second order correlation. That brings into ethics. And the ethics here is that you shouldn't have gender bias. But the second order of the analytics, the maths itself, has figured out the color car is correlated and is using that to drive the underlying gender bias. So you've got to start factoring these things out of your analytics because I said at the start, maths is biased. It just does whatever the data tells you uh, it is. So you have to put in these ethical rules into your data set to try and reduce the amount of bias that's happening in the maths. So that, that's one simple application, is how do I do an insurance premium in the UK that absolutely doesn't look at male-female, but actually there's lots of second-order correlated data points which actually does that as well. Now extrapolate that in your brain, Brian and Matt, and you can see the problems that you face as an institution to try and uh, unbias algorithms. Well, there's certainly, there's certainly a lot of comments around bias in algorithms at the moment. It's quite a top theme. I, I don't suppose for a moment we've resolved that issue or people have really resolved that issue. No. Let me give you another example. Let's pick China this time. In China, there is uh, web-based apps where it's on your phone and you've got a lovely little app and you can borrow money on an app within seconds. Maybe not seconds, but 30 seconds, a minute or two, you get approved. Part of that onboarding process and that loan application, this is it's not Western banks, it's Chinese banks, they switch on the camera on your phone and they look at your eyes to look at the amount of blinking you're doing. 
what they're basically doing is a lie detector test on your eyes to see if you're being honest. It's actually pretty accurate. It seems there is a massive correlation in the amount of blinking you do to whether you're uh, lying or not. And it rejects applications based on the amount on your eye movements and blinking. Now, imagine implementing that in the West. Imagine us sitting here in the UK and we're a financial institution and we switch on the camera of somebody's phone to spot fraud. Can you imagine the backlash? Can you imagine the privacy conversation you would have? You might be mathematically correct, and it is actually quite a good way of detecting something. But ethically, it's very, very damaging and difficult to do something like that. So there's loads of these use cases out there where you watch other countries and what they do, and you go, oh, that's interesting. But I don't think we can implement something like that in this country. There's some fascinating use cases. Did I get you on blinking now, Matthew? You did, and now I've, and my eyes only a little bit runny. I assure you. And... <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those things. Why? You know, is there a reason you can't blink and you can't you just start blinking, blinking, blinking? When was the last time you didn't blink? Like, oh, yeah, I think probably you don't blink at all. That's probably a good test as well. <laughs> but what's what I'm t- what I'm saying to you is that you've got traditional analytical use cases, but you've got all these other use cases that potentially could be done. Um, and so analytics is growing every day. You've heard of deep learning. You've heard of unsupervised learning, which is probably the where maths gets the biggest and where the algorithms really start growing on their own. Very difficult to implement unsupervised learning and deep learning because you have to put guide rails in place. You have to make sure what you've implemented won't deviate from some kind of standard structural way of doing something. And if they easily can deviate, you've all heard about the Microsoft chatbot that was on the web that they had to bring down because God bless this planet, a couple of thousand people decided to make it a racist by feeding it standard conversations to make it curse and do racist remarks because it was learning from the data feeds. And literally a couple of thousand people spent all night feeding this chatbot terrible language so that it started responding back in a similar way. And, and poor old Microsoft had to switch it off. And, and there's all these kind of use cases where you, where you look at it at the start, you're going, oh, that's a wonderful thing. What could possibly go wrong? I'll get my deep learning chatbot up and running on the internet and it will get data from people feeding it information and you don't realize a couple of thousand people will spend you know overnight to basically train it to be abusive which is what they did and it's it's amazing how these things can deviate from you've got to create very tight control rules around how they're used and switch them off automatically when they start deviating so I was going to ask you, is it easy to get it wrong? You know, it's this algorithm plus data set equals model. And how how easy is it to get, get it wrong? And how do you prove the model is good? But I think no matter how good you've made it, it didn't sound like it was something that was being done commercially to disadvantage Microsoft. It was just people being stupid with it, right? In, yeah. And having and, fun you know, so. and, you know, being silly probably a bunch of teenagers, uh, and having a laugh. They succeeded. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I, if you look at, a, let's take financial services algorithms, let's take uh, some of those autonomous algorithms in trading. You've, you've heard of the, some of the stock market crashes that have happened because these algorithms went out of control. They tripped. And they literally just did either the sell or the buy to the tune of millions of trades in nanoseconds before they could be switched off. And so what the regulators are doing is making all the investment banks who have these kind of, or the hedge funds have these kind of algorithms, have to have automatic switch-offs, fail-safes, that if it goes past a certain boundary, certain number of transactions, certain price point, stop, just stop. There's something potentially going wrong with this bot. And you've got to put some safeguards. It goes back to classic uh, science fiction. Now, you remember the, the three laws of robotics and the, the rules about the three laws. And if you think about those three laws, it's the same with bots. It's like, if there's something like switch yourself off, there's just something wrong here. Uh, you're past your boundaries. And yeah, maybe, maybe it is correct, but it's too extreme. The education is too much. You need to switch off for a while, uh, while it reconsiders. That's fine for financial trading, but, it, but imagine driving a car and it switches off. Then you've got a real problem. So the, the, the area that is really difficult is the autonomous vehicles and some of those kind of decisions. I honestly do not know how they can make an ethical decision. You know, do I divert and kill one person or, or swear to the right and kill two people? What's the ethical decision? One versus two. I don't think there is one. So how does the machine decide what is the course of action? I mean, some of those autonomous vehicles and, and their abilities to make the right decision, I, I'm lost in terms of how they will actually do it. I'm a, I'm a great believer of artificial intelligence that aids a human and helps a human win their role. But being completely autonomous, that's where I'm going, oh, I'm not 100% sure. So if I'm, if I'm building a system, Matthew, that helps you with decisioning, that helps you make a, do your job better, quicker, faster, easier, great. Replacing you completely? Ah, not sure, Matt. So I think it's that thing of augmented for, for, is a better approach. Yes. Because you, you, you still leave the decision in the one. Exactly. So let me take another example of uh, surgery. Doctors. They now have incredible AI that augments surgical procedures where the computer is aiding the doctor in terms of incisions, where to go next, etc. Amazing technology. Doesn't replace the surgeon. It helps the surgeon, it aids the surgeon, it tells them where the next cut should potentially be but it's the surgeon who makes the cut. And that to me, if somebody asked me what's the difference between independent versus augmented, I always give the surgeon example of, do you really want to be in a surgery where it's just a robot doing it? Or do you want to have the surgeon there who's been guided and aided? Let's go back to technology. It is this all about technology, but it's also around the integration of that technology in everyday life. The example you give, in 10, 15 years' time, there will probably be many, many other examples, and it will be the norm, right? It would you, you know, would you rather be seen by a doctor or a bot? You know, a bot can see you now. 
And a lot of bots can diagnose early stage cancer and all these things much better than a doctor. You know, they have incredible accuracy on some of these things these days, just on skin tone, color, all these kind of things, right? So you're right, Brian, but where, where do you decide that you don't need a doctor anymore? And that it's just the bots doing it. And, may, and maybe we've seen that in financial services, right? So if you remember, Matthew, the old days, you'd have the old Captain Mannering branch manager in your bank who would know <laughs> you your know name. You know I started my career in branch banking. I, you know you I started go. my career there in branch banking. Uh, so. <laughs> but you know your customer, the person comes in on a regular basis, you know exactly all the financial details, his, his or her standing in the community, etc. And therefore, when the person comes in and asks for a loan or a mortgage or whatever it is, you can have a good, proper conversation because you, you've done your KYC, you've done your stuff. It's, it's, it's a well-known person to you as a branch manager. Move it forward 30, 40 years. Digital banking, everything automated. KYC processes are really difficult these days because financial institutions don't know their customers anymore. It's all been digitized. And so that's why they have all these extra checks and controls in place, because there is no more the Captain Mannering knowing the community, making those kind of lending decisions. It's being done by computers, and the decision points are based on data around people or organizations. You've taken the human brain of cat and mannering and you tried it to embed it into computers. And there's pros and cons for that. Pros in terms of speed and how quickly you can do things and the cost. The con is, do you really know the customer? Do you, you know, is your data points really that accurate about an individual or a company to make those kind of decisions? How often do you get it wrong? And that, that's why data is becoming so important. I agree with you. I, I'm I'm asked a lot about you know the topic of you know digital first banking and branches and is there a future in branches? And and you speak to a lot of folks about well, when was the last time you went to a branch? Do you know your branch manager? Do you even know their name? And that whole relationship banking thing is no longer there. It's just totally you can phone up, you can do it online, your risk is assessed. A decision is made and there's no autonomy in the branch for that. That can lead to big issues, right? If you look financial crime, money laundering, those kind of elements, it allows or it facilitates those things to happen more than in the older kind of more rigid structures where they would know the individuals and they would spot unusual activity quicker or faster. But as you know, if you talk to most people these days they don't particularly want to go into a branch anymore they're very happy with their app on their phone and they're very happy with that digital banking service and they accept that a lot of the key decisions about their lives have been made on data points now instead of humans with algorithms that we've built to allow some kind of you know distinction and demarcation about whether this is a good risk or a bad risk and et cetera, et cetera. This space then, who, who leads the world in this, you know, geographically or industry or for what purpose? Are we heading to a head, uh, heading to or are we already in a minority report situation? You know, where, how's this, you know, where does this really fit and, and who's leading the way? Minority report is a great one. Uh, I keep getting asked, you know, 
Ray, uh, you know, where, when am I going to see that visualization of everything? The company I'm working for, Quantexa, is very advanced in that space. And that's why I became the CEO in terms of doing that kind of network and uh, conceptual decisioning around data points. Who is in the lead? Geographically, I'd have to say China. China are more advanced in uh, their decisioning analytics and their AI than the West, I'm afraid, at the moment. If you look at the advances they've done, because I suppose they aren't as regulated and they're allowed to do things more than Western, they've, they've made incredible advances in the last 10, 20 years. I mean, don't get me wrong. If you look at America, West Coast, it's incredible work. But I think China is slightly ahead on artificial intelligence, especially in the financial services space. If I look at sectors, I probably pick retail. Retail are so advanced compared to financial services. If you look at retailers, look at the analytics they use to figure out what a customer wants next, it's incredible analytics. And they've been doing it for years. If you look at their real-time distribution analytics and things like that, their customer benefits analytics, etc. The other area is the gaming industry. The analytics in the gaming industry around their user behaviors, incredible real-time behavior. They can spot, Matt, that you've been X number of hours on a game. They actually make the difficulty level a little bit harder to get you off the game because they know after a certain point of time that you're actually going to reject. So they want you to leave with a reasonable experience and to leave at an optimal amount of time. They've got all these algorithms running in the background that you're not even aware about watching your behavior and how you're doing on on a game it's it's incredible so i i honestly think financial services is way behind some of these things if i look at some of the other sectors and some of the analytics they're using especially around customer behavioral analytics some really deep beautiful models in some of the other areas if i take uh, things like uh, operations analytics and operational resilience things like that yeah, just just look at the airline industry, nuclear industry, automotive industry, and then start comparing that to financial services. Come on. Are you kidding me? Are you really going to say an operations unit in a bank is as good as Toyota? Really? You know, if you look at the signal engineering they've been doing for so long, I mean, they invented Six Sigma, for God's sake. And you look at the things that they've done, there's whole degrees now in those manufacturer engineering that you can do in college. I, I haven't seen a financial operations degree yet. <laughs> <laughs> so don't get me wrong, if I look at markets, I look at investment banking, I look at some tick-based analytics and the algorithms there, yeah, the nanosecond type stuff, pretty far advanced. But I look at some of the other areas of financial services, yeah, some of these other sectors, much more advanced. In the world where you know media is king and communications is is overtaking comp sci, I'm not sure <clears throat> anyone's going to be incentivized to go and do a three year degree in post trade settlement. Yeah, that, that's probably you know <laughs> you'd have to call it something else. <laughs> you know, 
you'd have to call <laughs> you'd, you'd definitely have to call it something else yeah what did yeah. you put blockchain what did, in there somewhere where, 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 yeah, <laughs> what, yeah. what did you stick study? a digital in there t plus we studied yeah we we, we start we, yeah we studied digital t plus there you go that's what we did yeah moving from t plus three to t plus one i remember that brian <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, but if you look at the how clunky those are, and the operational design, and also the signal engineering, but let's take operational resilience. You know, I'm in my risk hat for a moment. Very much a theme, especially with the geopolitical risks happening at the moment around the world. And then you look at what actually operational resilience actually needs. It needs signals within the processes to tell you when something's going to break. We don't even design those signals in when we build the processes. You can imagine a nuclear power plant where there's no control center. There's no dashboard to tell you how the pipes are doing. And there's somebody going around with a white coat and a clipboard with a tap hammer, tapping the different pieces of metal in the <laughs> in the nuclear factory. I mean, you'd shut the bloody thing down. You'd go, are you kidding me? No way is this, that should be allowed, right? Now, now, show me in a bank, Brian, where there's this control center where you're getting signals from all the different operational processes, not just about something going wrong, but predicting it's going to go wrong, because that's proper signal engineering. That's where you use the analytics, it's on that prediction. Industries have been doing that for years, other industries. Banking, way behind, I'm afraid, by. Way behind on some of these things. But you would, have thought, you would have thought in the assessment of credit risk that mm. that is something that would have been there. That's fair. On credit risk, but even credit risk, right, it was for years around uh, financials, your balance sheet, your spreading, and how is a financial organization or a human being, what their financials. It didn't really look at behavioral analytics or network analytics to really give you more, better predictions on credit. It really does use financials as its driver. Now it's changing. Now you're seeing a lot of the new co-banks and the new lenders really beginning to bring in behavioral and network analytics into that credit decision to allow them a much more accurate predictive model. When for the last, what, 40, 50 years, Matthew, all we did was use financials. We didn't do a sentiment score on Matthew in terms of before we, we lent them money. You know, there was no negative news scraping. There was not, none of these other kind of external data that we now have that we can use, which is completely changing uh, some of these aspects. So even something like credit, which has been around for a long, long time, is fundamentally changing in the new dynamic and the new paradigm around data analytics because you've got these external data sources which are supplementing the historic to create something new and more valuable. I see the future. Really? Well, what do you have, a crystal ball? What's going to happen? Listen, if you know something, you got to tell me. Ray, then, so what do you think will be one of the most significant game-changing technologies for 2022 and beyond? And how do you think that's going to help or hinder financial services? I'm going to talk about uh, a technology which has been around for a long time, but I'm beginning to see more and more acceleration of adoption, and that's cloud. I'll talk it in the vein of financial services, which is, you know, my home sector, let's put it that way. It was introduced a number of years ago. Actually, VMware were one of the first companies 
in that space in terms of virtualizing hardware and allowing companies to have virtual hardware, mostly on-prem in those days. And then it started moving to third parties and you, the big players started investing. And we know the three big Western players, you know, Google, Amazon, and uh, Microsoft. And of course, let's not forget IBM and a couple of others. And they invested an enormous amount of money to build out these data centers around the world and to get corporates to start moving onto their infrastructure. Now, in the old days, Matthew, used to be called data center outsourcing. Do you remember that old term? Well, we used to talk about a data center outsourcing. We used to give it to like an IBM or SunGuard or something like that. And it used to be something quite boring down the back that technology did. And the CEO of the bank wasn't really involved that much. And the regulator wasn't really involved that much as long as we showed, you know, how we could keep operational integrity. Then it changed. New words started being used. And the regulators got involved. And they got worried and scared. And they slowed things down. And I can't blame them. Because they were watching the whole world moving core infrastructure onto the cloud. And they were watching countries. Let's take the UK. Critical infrastructure to run the country onto these cloud providers. And they got worried about it because of the concentration risk, because of the security risk, because of the operational resilience, et cetera, et cetera. Words that you will have heard from regulators around the world, from any person who's trying to do a cloud migration. And so things got slowed down. So here's my prediction about technology. I think cloud providers are going to get regulated. I think cloud providers are going to become like an electricity company, a water company. They're going to become a utility player. And they'll be regulated like a utility. So, Matt, in in very simple terms, if you imagine you're a water company in the UK, you're providing the water to London. Excellent. If you go bankrupt on a Friday, the water still flows on a Monday because you're regulated to make sure that there is a company with enough capital in it to keep the water flowing and to make sure that that water has an operational process, no matter what happens to that company. The same will happen to cloud providers. They're becoming too critically important for national and countries. They will become utilitized and they will have to be regulated like a utility. So if Google goes down in the morning in California, the data center in the UK has to continue running and has to have enough capital and all the IP and all the hardware to allow that legal entity to continue running. So my prediction is not more of a technology prediction. I'm telling you, what I'm saying to you is, I think you're going to see a change around cloud provisions as a service where these big tech companies will be regulated like utilities. It's a very interesting prediction. And I think that you can see a lot of signs there for that. It's, it's interesting because I think this is, you, you mentioned the term, Ray, that we get asked about a lot about concentration risk. And actually our customers haven't defined their own version of con- concentration risk used to be supplier risk used to be platform risk, used to be, in fact, it's all of those things. But from a regulatory perspective, it's 
it's the regulator saying, oh, actually, I don't want every mortgage process in the UK in the same cloud. So the regulator will take a very different view on that. And I'm painting an extreme, obviously, to, to make the point. But I, like you, think that cloud, particularly for financial services, will become regulated. To what degree, we'll wait and see. And actually, what normally happens, dare I say, um, is there's a significant failure somewhere. And then through failure, oversight is applied. We've all been around long enough to have seen it before. So it's, as long as it doesn't happen to me, I'm okay, because I don't mind it happening to my mate down the road in that other bank. But then I'm going to see the repercussions because we'll get a, we'll get the equivalent of the good old-fashioned dear chairman letter, right, You know, from the regulator. So I, I absolutely think at some point that will happen. I think the regulator struggles at the moment to intervene on that basis because there hasn't been that market event. No, no, I agree. I think a market event will accelerate the process. And now it's time for the lightning round. Ah, uh, we usually call it the lightning round. Okay, welcome to the super awesome bonus lightning round. The lightning round begins now. This part of the conversation was recorded after we'd originally chatted with Ray. But we've got him back to find out more about who he is and what he likes. As usual, Ray, you can take a pass, but we'll probably have some fun at your expense later. Uh, Brian wasn't able to join us on this round, but I will do my best to get to the bottom of things with you, Ray. So let's get to the first question. Just to get things going then, what would be a a favourite book or movie? I'm going to pick a movie and I'm going to pick uh, Groundhog Day. I just like that movie. It's kind of complete. It's circular. And also you can sit there and imagine yourself in those circumstances and what would you do with eternity? And it's, uh, it's a great thing to think about. Uh, and it's a, it's a very easygoing movie that you can watch multiple times. I'm with you on that. And there's a few times I've thought I could do with that either for completing a task I've got to do or for learning the piano. I mean, what, a, what yes. an amazing... <laughs> that was one of the tasks, yes. For many more. Okay. Okay. If you had a time machine, would you go back in time or into the future? Oh, that's good. That's very good. Oh, which would I go? I think I would like to go forward in time because I am a firm believer of some things which are completely science fiction today, but I really think will actually happen. So one of the things I think will happen is the internet will eventually allow humans to upload their consciousness. And we will have computers powerful enough to mimic the human brain. If you have that, then all of a sudden you have a virtual consciousness and you'll have a replica of yourself. Wow, that a true digital twin. A true digital twin, exactly. Wow. That would be incredible. Then you could just download yourself onto into wet, grown <laughs> bodies. <laughs> Uh, your consciousness would remain infinite. And sometimes I think about this and I go, are we one of the last generations who will actually die? Um, and, you know, you could get wow. quite quite uh, fascinated with this stuff. There's lots yeah, of science. Yeah. Of course it's not true yet, Matt, <laughs> but if you look at where we're going, if you look at quantum computing, if you look at how fast they will work and what they will be capable of doing, and then you also look at how much we can replicate the human brain today and how quickly we're advancing in that space with AI and everything else. I'm actually a believer. I'm a believer that it will happen at some stage. So I'd like to go forward in time 
for that moment because that would change completely humanity. That's deep. That's probably the deepest answer we've had to that question. And uh, oh, sorry. so that no, no, no. That that is fabulous. And um, I think that's something. Um, yeah, maybe we can be chatting over a glass of wine on that. Uh, yes, uh, indeed. In the future. So that's a good one. Okay. So uh, morning or evening? Evening. I'm an okay. evening person, Matt. I've found my whole life difficult getting up in the morning. And evenings, I am normally the last person at the bar. That, well, okay. That's a different story. Tea or coffee? <laughs> coffee. I'm addicted to espressos and uh, drink way too many of them. Okay. All right. Still or sparkling? Still. Yeah, yeah. You know, I kind of knew that was going to be it. I, I knew that was going to be it. Um, <laughs> so if you could have dinner with anyone, dead or alive, who would it be? Oh, that amazing question. So many people to choose from. Who do you pick? Einstein for his intelligence. Oscar Wilde for his witticism. Jesus. That'd be an interesting one. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Very hard to choose one. I'd probably pick Oscar Wilde because I do like a, a good, enjoyable dinner. That, uh, that, and he would, he would keep the conversation going. Uh, and to be fair, sometimes we say, if you had three people at a dinner party. So there you go. Uh, well, I think we can, we can do that. Um, your three together would be very interesting. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, and your role in there could just be antagonist to see who's going to say what you're expecting them to say. So you could, could be quite good. What piece of career advice do you wish you'd given to your younger self? Don't be afraid. Try out things. Give it a go. Be more experimental and allow yourself to have more volatility in your career and in, and in your aspirations and try things more. I think people get stuck in a rut in jobs. They're comfortable, but they're not happy. Mm. And I if I look at my younger self, I could have maybe moved on quicker in some places and done things differently. All right. Good. Nice. Um, OK, there's, so this one we always try and ask. Uh, when was the last time you used cash um, and, and what was it for? Beautiful question. Ireland last weekend for a pint in a packed pub because the machine had broken on the counter. <laughs> Lucky you had some cash. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And there was an awful lot of people in that pub who didn't. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Um, okay, so, wacky question. If you were an ice cream, what flavour would you be? My favourite flavour is mint chocolate chip. But I don't know if I want to be a mint chocolate chip. That's a very, no, very no, That's question. the thing. It's the difference between yeah, what your favourite yeah. is and what would you like to be. Yeah. yeah. I might actually want to be a vanilla. But maybe that's a bit boring. Mm. Maybe, maybe vanilla with salted caramel. <laughs> chewy or crunchy salted caramel oh uh, uh, crunch crunch it up crunch there you go there you go there you go <laughs> nice question that <laughs> so what was your most memorable technology experience and why i would say it was many years ago at emc i went to cork and they presented to me the virtualization of a data center and disks and CPUs. And I sat there going, this will never take off. It doesn't make any <laughs> sense at all. And I remember it was the whole weekend. And by the second day, I was looking at going, oh, my God, this is the future. This is going to completely revolutionize the whole way that we do technology. 
That was many, many years ago, Matt. If only I had invested in some of those companies oh, <laughs> along the way, including yeah. the one you're working for today. Yeah. Uh, yeah, It's incredible what has happened in that space. It's probably, in my view, one of the biggest technology achievements was the virtualization of infrastructure. Well, we wouldn't have a cloud without one. Wouldn't have a cloud without it, indeed. Um, so, uh, look, you, you know, you, you're widely travelled uh, like uh, like we are. So, um, what's the weirdest food you've eaten? Vietnam uh, snakes. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure they were poisonous, but they did skin the snakes. And the, I, I didn't. I swear, I didn't ask for it, Matt. Uh, I wouldn't have. Uh, but out came a live snake, and they skinned it in front of us. And I don't. Oh my god! And oh. they then, of course, made us eat a piece of it uh, once we had been cooked. Yes, yes. Just not, not appetizing. Not nice. No, 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 no ma'am. Just no. <laughs> I think some things are on that no list. Snake soup in Hong Kong was always, um, uh, you know, it's a local favourite, but it just wasn't mine. Okay, so um, last two. Um, best professional development book you've ever read? I'm going to say a controversial thing and say that I don't really read them. Yeah, I'm going to say it simple as that. No, it's no, not, not no. my thing. That's fair enough. All right, I'm going to ask you a different question instead then. If you had to delete all but three apps from your smartphone, uh, oh, which ones would you keep? Oh, very good, very good, Matt. Have to have my banking app. Uh, there's a lot of financial stuff I do. My email app, I have to have some communication. And probably one of my texting apps. Yeah, so, so two staying communication in touch. and one finance. There you go. There That's you a go. lot of apps that I've just got rid of, though. <laughs> I know. Have you got the and same problem as me? I've got way too many apps on your phone. I know. I've got that problem. And and every now and then, I think I'm going to do. I'm going to purge it. Yeah. But it's the same. Th- it's the same thing. You know, there was a time when you used to manage your hard disk, and now, yes, that's just not. That's just not good effort, right? It is laziness, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> right. Final question, and this is Brian's favourite, and and we ask this of everybody: You have to sing karaoke. Which song do you pick? Oh, wow. You're bringing me back to my Nomura days. I would probably actually pick an Irish song because I know the words too. And I'd probably pick uh, Seven Drunken Nights because wow, I wow. do a good rendition and I don't really need the music in the background. And I can do it <laughs> sober and drunk. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll add that on to uh, our conversation next about the future. Um, Ray, thank you so much for coming back and and, uh, and and going through these with us. Hopefully it wasn't too daunting. Um, I really appreciate it as, as always. Thank you so much. I really want to say thank you to both of you. Uh, a pleasure. Uh, see you soon. To keep up with Ray, please follow him on LinkedIn. You'll have links in our show notes. As always, if we can help you in any way, please talk with your VMware account team or you can connect with us on LinkedIn. Just search for Brian Hayes or Matthew O'Neill at VMware. You can also follow me on Twitter at Matthew O-N and our podcast on Twitter at dbtbpod. You can find our show notes at don'tbreakthebankpodcast.com. And if you like our podcast and could leave us a review and comment on Apple Podcasts, that'd be really appreciated. If you've any ideas for future episodes or would wish to appear as a future guest, please do get in touch. We hope you can join us again next time. Please do take care.